0: This is a podcast from 3RRR102.7FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And we've been hearing a lot about franking credits recently, and it's been a really curious debate because most of the people I know anyway don't. Even understand how Australia's dividend imputation system even works, let alone be able to decipher whether the changes the ALP proposes to make to the system will affect or not affect the income of vulnerable retirees, as claimed by the government. There's big money at stake, though, so um, we've invited Emma Dawson from Per Capita. She's the executive director over there, and she's become somewhat of a good communicator on this topic. And it's really great to have you in at Triple R and. Uh, I suppose maybe in a nutshell
1: explain to us what's at stake with franking credits, <laughs> dividend imputation? I'll do my best. So um, people tend to hear the phrase dividend imputation and their eyes glaze over <laughs> and uh, it's certainly not something that's easily understood in the in the popular uh, discourse as they say. Uh, but it's become an issue because it is going to be um, a, a particular point of difference on um, policy going into the election and the ALP has taken a pretty strong stand on, on changing this uh, particular tax arrangement. So the way that it works is uh, it was introduced originally in 1987 by the Keating, or by Paul Keating as Treasurer, so the Hawke government, um, and then changed in 2000. And the way that it works is to ensure that um, profits that are paid out in dividends to shareholders, so company profits that are paid as dividends to shareholders aren't taxed twice. Um, what happens is when a company pays, profit, uh, pays tax on its profits uh, of you know 30%, which is the company tax rate, then a share of that profit goes to the shareholder in the company. Uh, the shareholder gets a credit for the tax already paid, and they can use that under the original model um, to offset their own personal income tax. So if they pay a a marginal tax rate of 45%, they get a 30% discount on that proportion of their income from that share. Um, Costello in 2000 changed it so that you could could reduce your tax beyond zero. So if you didn't pay tax, uh, you no longer just got... A credit to reduce your own income tax, but if you paid no income tax, you actually got that money in cash from the ATO. Uh, now, the the original principle is important. It's saying we don't want to tax that profit twice. It's been taxed once, so it shouldn't be taxed again. But what happens under the system now is uh, those the share of that profit that's going to shareholders who don't pay tax isn't actually being taxed at all because the the um, ATO takes the tax from the company and then gives it back in cash to the shareholder if they are non-taxpayers. So, rather than that money going into general revenue to fund roads and hospitals and schools, it's going into the pocket of the shareholder. So, it's five billion dollars apparently. It's five, it's five billion at stake dollars, here yeah, that, and that we pay currently to. In cash refunds to people that don't pay tax. And it's not the ATO anyway.
0: chasing it that no one's paid tax. No, no, no. It's by policy that that tax isn't being taken by the government. That
1: it's been taken from the company, but then it's been given back in cash to people that, that have no taxable income. And as we know, most self funded retirees who are living on um, income from superannuation don't pay tax because superannuation in the drawdown phase is tax free.
2: And uh, it's kind of been a difficult issue to, <laughs> to get my head around, and I'm sure that's the case for for a lot of people out there. Partly, perhaps because a lot of us have never heard of franking yeah. credits or dividend imputations because it doesn't affect us because no. we may not be wealthy enough or we're not we're not retired and thinking about self managed super funds that's right true. at this point in time. But how many people do actually receive these refunds around um, Australia? Well,
1: a lot of people receive credit. Uh, franking credits mm. but those that are receiving them that, that that come back in cash because they don't pay ta- pay tax the, the estimates it's around 900,000 retirees now um... They are self-funded retirees. The majority of Australians aren't self-funded retirees. They will rely on some combination of the age pension and their superannuation. We've got to remember the average super balance for people retiring today is at roots in around you know fifty five thousand for a man and thirty thousand for a woman. so you're not living off the income from that you're on you're on some kind of combination with the pension. um but if you've managed and it will obviously increase over time as more of us retire that have had super for longer, but if you've managed to, get together a decent balance of super and you can afford to live on it and you don't draw a pension at all, um, then you'll be affected by this if you've geared your investments towards Australian companies that pay high dividends. Uh, And a lot of retirees over the last 18 years while this policy's been in place have been encouraged by financial advisors to do just that, to to, um, put most of their money into big Australian companies that pay high dividends and try to live as much as they can off the income and not draw down as much of the capital that they've got in their super accounts. And so where it starts to get confusing to me
0: is that, uh, you know, on one hand you go, fantastic, these people are self-funded mm-hmm. and and our system through superannuation has tried to encourage peop- as many people yeah. as possible to live off super and not necessarily draw a pension. Yep. And But my reading of things is that some of the self-funded retirees that are getting the uh, the franking credits and going into negative taxation are actually getting more from the government than than people on the pension, so that you know yeah. people on the pension get about twenty two thousand dollars a year. That's right. Some people are getting higher than that, so yeah. it's
1: actually not saving on the pension. No, so so a lot of <clears throat> people in this situation are getting you know cash checks, checks from the ATO that exceed the value of the age pension um, in return for their franking credits. Now not everybody, you know, there's a, there's a good chunk of people at the margins of this policy that are getting between five and ten thousand a year and that's a significant portion of their income and they're the ones that are, uh, that are the most affected by this. But the, the, you know, the majority of people um, that are going to lose their, their refund in this or their cash payment as I would prefer to call it um, are quite wealthy compared to the rest of society, certainly compared to age pensioners to, to you know, people living on any other kind of government benefit. And that is money coming from other taxpayers. The, the argument p- often put forward is, well, no, it's not. It's money coming from the company that I own a share in, but the company tax should actually be going to general revenue to fund things. And if it's not, then it's foregone revenue that the rest of us have to make up for.
2: Something that, that I've been kind of grappling with is, is, is who exactly would be receiving these credits based on the marginal tax rate they're in, because the very wealthy ideally should be paying a higher rate of tax but those who do receive franking credits are those who are paying less than a 30% tax rate, which is less than co- the company tax rate. Yeah. So how then are sort of mega wealthy people receiving credits?
1: Um, well, they, they gear their investments so that they have a zero marginal tax rate, essentially. So um, you can draw... You've, you know, you've got to recall that um, another change that Peter Costello made was to make all income from superannuation tax-free in the drawdown phase, which means that... And there's been recently a cap imposed on that. Um, but the cap is 1.6 million for an individual, 3.2 million for a couple. Uh, if you've got 3.2 million dollars as a couple sitting in a self-managed super fund, and that's you know the upper limit beyond which you do start paying some tax at 15%, um, you've got to think a 5% return on that is well over 150,000 dollars a year that you're living on tax-free. Mm. But it's not considered a taxable income mm. because you're not paying tax on it. So to say well i I've, I've got a taxable income of zero you know but you're getting 150 grand or 100 grand or even 60 grand which is more, much more average for the people we're talking about uh, tax free that's equivalent to a pretty high income as for a, for a pay as you go worker um these people have usually owned their own home as well. You've got to bear in mind that as a couple um, <clears throat> who's retired is allowed to have assets up to eight hundred and forty-eight thousand dollars on top of the family home before they lose their part pension. And pensioners or part pensioners are exempt from this. So we're not we're not necessarily talking about people that are living high on the hog. A lot of people that are affected by this will be living on you know a fairly average income, but they're certainly not and they're certainly comfortable they could rearrange their tax um, system so that the franking credits is offset by m- changing their investment mix or, and this is the critical thing, they could draw down more of their capital. Now superannuation is not intended to be hoarded as a capital sum to pass on to your kids. It's meant to fund your life in retirement. The Murray Financial Inquiry um, found that that's the purpose of super. There's a piece of legislation sitting in the Senate that says that the government should declare that's the purpose of super. But What we're hearing from a lot of people complaining at the inquiry about this is, ''I'll have nothing left to hand down to my kids.'' The rest of us shouldn't be subsidising your estate planning so that you can hand down a big lump sum on top of the family home to your kids when there are a lot of young people today that can't even get into the housing market and they're paying tax on their earnings. It's just not fair. Emma Dawson's with us, Executive Director at
0: Per Capita. and So you're pretty popular then among a certain group of people because, I mean, it is sort of an uncomfortable area to talk about, isn't it? Because I suppose as a a country and with tax policy, we need to make choices and we have a progressive tax system in Australia That I think most people are pretty proud of, and it works pretty well. And this is one area where it's, um, you know, the ALP thinks it's not working well, Mm. the Liberal National Party thinks it is Mm. working well. And we are getting examples a lot of people affected that it's really going to affect their lives. Um, Will the ALP policy really affect these people's lives, or or, um, can there be changes made to it that? could ma- make it a bit easier on people that are on the lower income end of the spectrum? Look, I
1: think, I think the targeting measure that, that the ALP took, when they first announced this policy, they got a lot of blowback and they, a couple of weeks later, said, okay, we're going to exempt pensioners and part pensioners. And that was a, a neat and simple method by which to target it to people um, that were generally at the low income scale. So if you've got a combined income from a part pension and your super balance of about $50,000 a year and you were set to lose 10% of that, that was a problem, you know, for people. So they exempted part pensioners and as i said as a couple you can have almost 900,000 or 850,000 in in your super balance before you lose your part pension so i think that was a good targeting measure i think to target it further you start to you start to destroy the principle of this which is to say actually this is this is money that's in, ends up not being taxed at all from company profits and th- there should be tax paid either at the company rate or at the marginal rate on all profits otherwise we lose the benefit of our tax and transfer system, which is incredibly well-targeted, you know. The point you make is a really good one. Um, It's about making choices. And all tax reform, if you were to say, well, this is going to affect this group negatively, and I've planned my my finances around this for 18 years, so you can't change it, that's an argument for never doing tax reform at all. And as we see, we've got an ageing society, we've got challenges in funding things like the NDIS. Um, $5 billion a year is almost what we spend on public schools across the country. It's a choice that you have to make to say actually you know these people they'll feel a little bit of short term pain but they can afford it relative to people that are living on the age pension the disability support pension New Start for crying out loud which is you know so far below the poverty line it's just not funny hasn't gone up in a long time hasn't gone up in 25 years and you know people it's actually preventing people getting jobs because they can't get a decent they can't afford a tram to get to an interview so there are choices we have to make um, as a society and absent a more holistic reform of superannuation tax Arrangements, which I think is overdue. I think you know the fact that you can have millions of dollars in super and an in, a six-figure income and not pay tax, and you're going to live on that for twenty or thirty years, and expect young working people to support you. These are often also the people that you know scream about immigration, but I don't know where they think that the workforce is going to come to support them as they as they age. Um, it's it's not sustainable. So absent a, a more holistic reform of the tax system in super, I think this is a good fairness measure. I think it's a great first step. Um, you're right. I haven't been very popular as I've no, been. because it feels like. This.
0: I mean, when you when you are pointing out to people, and I'm sure you're doing it in person mm. to people that are going to be directly affected, that you're saying, "Look, um, you might feel like you're scraping for cash, but yeah. actually, you're not, and but, you're pretty well off in the scheme sorry. of things." Is a hard conversation to have. It's so a how hard how does that go? Because I, I imagine that it's quite sort of confronting to people mm. to also realise that they they are relatively wealthy when they don't feel it. That's
1: it. And there are a yeah. lot of people of goodwill who genuinely don't think, they're not they are not greedy, they're not selfish, but we know all surveys show in our own ta- annual tax survey, which will be out in a couple of weeks, shows year on year that people underestimate how comfortable they are relative to the rest of the population. Uh, everyone at the moment, unless they're very wealthy, feels pressured, the cost of living's going up wages aren't growing um, inflation's been stubbornly low for a long time so interest rates have been low so the return on investment has been low and so people feel pressured but actually if you're doing well enough to not need a pension in your retirement and you're drawing enough in frank- in, in dividends, shares and income from dividends and franking credits that you don't need to draw down more than the minimum on your capital then you are probably in the top 20% of wealth in this country and so so it's a fundamental principle of saying do we believe that we should all pay a little bit of what, you know, we should all pay more relative to what we can afford to have a fair society and to invest in the next generation in education for our kids in a strong health system. I mean, older people use the health system much, much more than younger people do on average and yet we're talking about people that don't even pay the Medicare levy levy mm. because they're on a, a no taxable income. So... This is a contribution to services, and that—that's the fundamental principle. You either believe in a tax and transfer system, and our tax and transfer system is redistributive by nature. It's not—it's not, re- it's not a, you know communist thing to say that you believe in redistribution. If you don't believe in redistribution, you're in a pretty big minority in this country and it's a principle of fairness I think.
2: And so these reforms of course have been proposed by the Labor Mm. Party in in opposition. Um, There aren't sort of changes proposed yet by by the government but we do have a parliamentary inquiry Mm. into this. Why do we have a parliamentary inquiry into opposition policy?
1: Yeah it's a pretty unusual move. (laughs) There's been quite a lot of criticism of um, Tim Wilson, the member for Brighton who's the chair of the House Economics Committee. It's very unusual to hold a parliamentary inquiry into opposition policy um and he's been criticized for politicizing this um we made a submission to the inquiry at per capita through the usual channels. We make a lot of submissions to parliamentary inquiries and we did that through the um, parliamentary website of the committee. Um, but, of course, the chair set up a separate website encouraging um, submissions from people that were aggrieved by the policy uh, with fairly political overtones and in order to... Stop the uh, retirement tax? Is stop that the-, the retirement mm. tax, something similar to that. And, it, you know, it's not actually a tax, it's it's the closing down of a tax concession. Um, but in order to appear at that inquiry, you had to go through this... Well, you didn't have to, but it appeared that you had to go through this website and tick a box. Um, there was no invitation from the parliamentary committee itself <coughs> through the usual channels to organisations to come and make presentations, which is what we usually find happens when we make a submission. So it's been quite a twisted system. Um, and, I, th- you know, my personal view, and it's not one that's... Um, uh, uncommon is that it is it is the politicisation of a parliamentary committee process, and that's really really unfortunate. And I don't think you know is something we want to see happen again.
0: And I mean, as someone who understands what's going on, Emma, I, I suppose you know I'm concerned and also quite under, understanding when younger people hear of this policy. It's kind of like oh well, they've got a house, they've got all this, and yeah. and we're struggling to even get to first yeah, base here. Right. And I don't like that intergenerational. No stuff that happens, no. um, and I don't think anybody does, but it's totally understandable, yeah. and I suppose, you know, are you thinking it's going to sway votes um, at the next election in, in May, or do you think it's, you know, some um, electorates will be affected more than others? Look, I,
1: we haven't looked at that. We tend to look at the policy and whether or not it's a measure of, I mean, our, our think tank's very focused on addressing inequality, so we look at it in those measures, but I'm sure the Labor Party's done its homework about who it'll affect and where the votes might be. Um and, and that's for them to consider. Um, I think the policy stands on its merits. But you're right in that it, generationally it is unfair. W- there was a, a piece in the Saturday paper a couple of weeks ago that quoted one of the um, self-funded retirees that turned up at the inquiry and said, look, you know, if this happens, we're going to have to let go of our gardener and our cleaner. And the reaction to that on social media was just wild. People are like, man, he's not just got a gardener, he's got a garden. Like, I can't even afford a, an apartment with a balcony. And, you know, why should we be funding this guy's gardener? Um, And there is some, you know, unreality out there about just what well-off means. But in terms of intergenerational inequality, the key thing for me is this um, can actually lead to the exacerbation of that inequality over time. So if people are able to hoard large capital balances in their super um, and die with that that capital intact and pass that on to their kids, while we've got a whole heap and the majority of other young people in Australia are not going to inherit anything, if they're lucky, they might get the family home home, but, you know, there's a whole heap of people that won't even get that, then we're going to, over time, see a much more unequal society where you can only really get ahead if your parents leave you a lot of money. And that's not mm. the Australia that most of us really feel should be, you know, what we live in. It's n- it's not what we've always been as a country.
2: And, and so these reforms are, are one element of our, our tax system mm. that, that could potentially lead to, to greater equality. But you've talked about the need for broader reform into super. Yeah. Do you think we'll start kind of having that conversation either in the lead up to the election or, or afterwards? Are things going to move there? I
1: think maybe afterwards. I think probably um, Labor's got enough on its plate with this and the negative gearing and capital gains tax reforms. They're some pretty bold policy moves. I mean, they shouldn't be, but in context of the last couple of decades of of discussion around tax in this country, to make these changes where there are clear losers... um, from opposition is a pretty bold move. So, But I do hope that we see it happen. It's, it's inevitable if we're going to be responsible. I mean, tax is the price you pay for living in a civilised society, as the saying goes. Um, if we're going to have... Uh, have in place measures that ensure that we can fund the services that we all rely on, then the tax base has to be defended and and in some cases increased. Um, this idea that all taxation is bad and government is bad and we should shrink government as much as possible is such a kind of US Tea Party idea and it's it's infiltrated our politics over a long time. I think it's encouraging to see Labor standing up on these things and I really hope they do hold their nerve on this. Chris Bowen's given every indication that he will um, and Shorten has as well and I think um, if they can do that and they can win an election with these policies in place then that bodes well for further tax reform in the future Let's see what happens and um, thank you so much it's always really great to have you in at R. It's great to be here, thanks.
0: Um, Emma Dawson, Executive Director at Per Capita and you can head to their website if you're interested and want to read some more of their submissions or to get in touch with Emma and a judge in New South Wales rejected an open cut coal mine proposal for the mid north coast because it was in the wrong place at the wrong time, meaning that a among other things, the emissions from burning the coal would count towards climate change with adverse impacts on the environment and the community. And the case against the Rocky Hill open-cut coal mine near the town of Gloucester was heard in the New South Wales Land and Environment Court and was brought by the Environment Desen- uh, Environmental Defender's Office on behalf of its client, Grand- Groundswell Gloucester. Uh, David Morris is CEO with the EDO and solicitor there as well. And he joins us in um, a really interesting... Uh, decision uh, david uh, was it something that you were expecting when you went in to to take this case to the land and environment court
3: yeah so there's a, there's a few important things to note which was the first and the first of that those is that this was actually a refusal of the government first and foremost so the government of new south wales said that this mine shouldn't be approved because of its impact on uh, the scenic valley of gloucester uh, and also, it's, it's, um, it's inconsistency with the planning controls. But we actually sought to join this case to argue two additional grounds that justified refusal, or we said justified refusal, which were this mine's contributions to climate change and this mine's uh, social impacts that it would have on the community of Gloucester. Uh, it's, it's a landmark decision. It's, it's certainly one that may have far reaching consequences. It's not a radical decision. It's, it really is, we say, at the logical conclusion that you arrive at when you apply climate science uh, to the legal framework in New South Wales.
2: And one of the things particularly interesting from reading Justice Preston's ruling is that this wasn't just about the, the direct impacts that the mine would have on the community and, and the area surrounding where the mine would be in Gloucester, but this was rather about its, its impact on global climate emissions. Is there a precedent for that?
3: No, no, there's not. This is this is a first. And one of the things that's so, I guess, uh, that makes this case a landmark is that the judge looked at the standard arguments raised by uh, coal mining proponents, and there's sort of four of them broadly, and he rejected each and every one. But the, the one you raised, Dylan, is an important one, which is that each individual project only contributes a small fraction of the totality of global emissions. But the judge says that really this global problem is going to need to be addressed by multiple local actions and that means at the project level where projects that are going to contribute to emissions are approved or not approved.
0: And had you brought uh the the argument that of a coal mine's contribution to climate change before a court before David?
3: It's certainly been this was a novel way of raising it so uh we've certainly argued that Scope 3 emissions, so emissions that occur where the product is burned or outside of the direct emissions of a project are burned. We've certainly raised that before as something that needs to be considered as part of, decision, uh, as, as part of a decision-making on a project. The, the, the difference in this case, in, in part, is the unique type of review that it was. So it gave the opportunity for the judge to uh, stand in the shoes of the, of the initial decision-maker and make what he thought on the evidence was the was the best decision, a good or bad decision. Most of the time, courts are sitting in judgment on a previous decision-maker's um, decision and looking at whether or not they could have lawfully reached that conclusion. So this was a little bit broader than that, and it allowed us to put forward evidence, particularly the client testimony of, of Professor Will Steffen, um, and and that allowed the judge to fully consider those arguments. So it's, it's a... That, in and of itself is enormous because the mining company and the government chose not to refute any of the climate science. They could have, uh, presumably given how significant this judgment is and how significant this case is, if there was an an opposing view, they would have put it. So I I think you can accept that the climate science science is is not disputed by the government or by the mining companies. What, What was disputed by them is how you approach it. So they put on economists rather than scientists.
2: And uh, I want to ask you a little bit about Justin Preston himself. So he's Chief Justice of the Land and Environment Court and, and previously has sat as a judge on the New South Wales Supreme Court of Appeal. So it seems like a, a very senior judge. Does that mean, um, I guess in your view, that this ruling would be particularly influential or, or does that not matter so much?
3: Look, well, he's an eminent jurist and a, and a world-recognised expert In this field and in the field of planning and environmental law, he's sat on the court for a long period of time. And I think the fact that this is a judgment of a superior court of record, it's the equivalent of a a Supreme Court, um, carries far more weight than, say, if it was a decision of a tribunal or something like that.
0: And uh, one of the um, I was in reports coming out of this judgment, uh, there was discussion around what's been called the carbon budget, and in the judgment that uh, you know most fossil fuel reserves will need to remain in the ground unburned um, because of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? What was discussed around the carbon budget?
3: So, so Will Steffen uh, w- was our client's expert in this case, and, and essentially he says. The Paris Agreement has a hard target of of limiting uh, global mean temperature rise to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels uh, with an aspirational goal of 1.5 degrees. So he says, if you start from that point, you want to stay below those temperatures, there is a finite amount of CO2 emissions which can be discharged to the atmosphere in order to meet those things. So that's your budget. And he's saying... If you look at the currently permitted reserves of fossil fuels that are able to be burned, well we're going to overshoot that budget. So in order to get a new fossil fuel project over the ground um, out of the ground, you actually have to show why it won't have a net contribution to this problem where we're in effect already going to overshoot those uh, those uh, temperature targets.
0: And so if Australia hadn't have signed up to Paris, could that have been taken into account in inside the court?
3: Uh, I think it would have been far more difficult. I mean, one of the one of the aspects of our argument was that um, international law is persuasive in decision making, and the fact that we have signed up, along with most other countries in the world, to these targets. Well, uh, it's then incumbent upon decision makers to take those into account, um, and and consider, in this example, whether or. Not project was going to contribute or not contribute to that project so I think one of the implications of this decision is that new fossil fuel projects if they want to uh, make applications for approval will have to think very very carefully about things they might do to offset their project and and that's going to be really very very difficult Uh, and it's a very difficult challenge for new fossil fuel projects to overcome and, and we've characterized it as the sort of wrong time test
2: we're speaking with David Morris CEO and a solicitor at the Vir- Environmental Defenders Office New South Wales all about a landmark ruling in New South Wales Lands and Environment Court to reject uh, a new open cut coal mine in Gloucester on the mid north coast of New South Wales and I want to talk a bit about the implications of this David because of course um, there are still plans afoot to uh, build a coal mine on the in the Galilee Basin the Carmichael mine that's been called my understanding from reading about the relative size of this proposed mine in Rocky Hill is that that would uh, produce uh, around about or burn through 2.5 million tonnes of coal per year. The proposed Carmichael mine would be about 10 million tonnes. So it's bigger um, and presumably uh, if there were a challenge along the same lines as what you've mounted um, in New South Wales there'd be, I guess, serious questions to ask around the contribution to um, global emissions from that particular project.
3: So certainly one of the things that uh, judge Preston said in in his judgment that was when you're looking at a new uh, fossil fuel project you'd look at um, both its actual source of emissions and he says in some instances that would be so large that looked at in isolation it, it itself would justify refusal that wasn't in the, in this instance in the Rocky Hill instance it was one of a number of factors which included the extreme social impacts impacts Aboriginal cultural heritage so yes if you're looking we, we would say that Based on what His Honour has said in this judgment, a project with a larger uh, contribution to global climate emissions would have more difficulty um, uh, achieving an approval under this uh, under this test uh, than what it has previously. Now, it is important. To note, however, that this is a case-specific judgment, so it doesn't—it's not a—it's a precedent in the literal sense. It's not a precedent in the legal sense Mm. in that it doesn't mean you're going to have no new fossil fuel projects. And and certainly, there's actually been some judgments in Queensland, um, which I think differ from from the approach that Justice Preston took in in the Rocky Hill case.
0: Yeah, and I mean we're getting quite a lot of different news uh, coming out of the, the coal industry at the moment i mean we've got the the issues with exports to china we've got glencore a major player um saying it's not going to keep expanding its its operations beyond beyond its current so i mean are you expecting to to see more of this sort of i suppose it's good slash bad news for the coal industry
3: uh look i i think that's right because Uh, the the climate science tells us and it was accepted in the court in this instance that we need deep and rapid reductions and one of the cheapest ways to achieve those reductions is by um, taking coal out of the energy equation because there are readily available substitutes. Interestingly, that was an argument raised by Gloucester Resources in this instance. They said... Uh, because in in that instance, it's a coking coal mine. It's coal used for the manufacturing of steel. And they said, well, there's no readily available alternatives yet for, the, for uh, to displace that that type of coal. Whereas there are for thermal coal mines. So you're interestingly seeing a bit of a rift opening up in terms of the way different parts of the coal industry are going to argue for their case. And Gloucester Resources themselves said that thermal coal mining is uh, thermal coal is now readily replaceable by other technology.
2: And I'm interested in in what this means for the future of climate change litigation. I mean, have you had contact with um, other kind of law officers or or lawyers who are very interested in in what you managed to achieve in this particular case?
3: So there's there's a few interesting things, I think, about this case. So one is that uh, the judge in this instance recognised the causative link between a fossil fuel development and climate change. So that might... Uh, pave the way for future compensation claims of the kind being seen in the United States. But, um, and I think the other reason that it's of significance is that uh, Justice Preston really overcomes a number of the, <clears throat> of the arguments that have been raised previously to, to get rid of or dispose of climate litigation. For example, um, the market substitution argument, i.e., if we don't do it, someone else will. And he says, well, that's actually um, hypothetical and speculative and there was nothing before him by way of evidence to show that if he didn't open up the mine in Gloucester, someone would open up a less well-regulated or um, lower-quality coal mine somewhere else in the world. So I think the the impacts of this are are quite far-reaching. In New South Wales, obviously, they're most directly um, applicable, but the general principles articulated by the judge in this case will be, I think, particularly persuasive uh, in Australia and, and, and but also persuasive around the world.
0: Well, thank you so much for giving us some more information about it and, of course, people can um, hit their favourite news site to find out a little bit more background if they're interested. Um, thanks for spending some time with us. No, absolute pleasure. And things aren't going so great for recycling at the moment. The contents of a large number of Melbourne's yellow recycling bins have been have to be emptied into landfill because a major recycling company has been banned from collecting waste until their facilities are made to be safer. And this comes a year after China started refusing Australia's recycling waste because it wasn't clean enough. So what now for curbside recycling in Victoria? We've asked Trevor Thornton to have a chat with us. He's a lecturer in the School of Life and Environmental Science at D. And uh, it's great to have you with us, Trevor Are things, how dire are things? It sounds pretty bad at the moment But, um, you know, are we in a a crisis situation with recycling in Victoria?
4: Hey, good morning And uh, I think, yes, we are It it is pretty bad at the moment Um, And um, really, it's a bit difficult to see where it's all going to end up
2: and so we heard last year that China had imposed a ban to stop receiving Australian uh, recycling. What impact has that had on the sector more broadly? I mean, was this a problem that you saw coming or, or did that kind of um, take Australia by surprise?
4: No, we, uh, a lot of people saw it coming. We knew that that was going to happen. China had sort of, I guess, forewarned us uh, Prior to implementing the ban, and the major issue was the uh, high level of contaminants in the recycling that they were purchasing. It's like going and buying, you know, a, a, a drink or a bit of food, and there's a whole lot of other stuff in it. You know, you you you're warned that you're not going to buy it again, and um, so we knew it was coming. Uh, but a lot of people sort of had their head in the sand and um, didn't put in strategies in place.
0: And so that affected the whole country. But in Victoria, we've also had the issue where the EPA has recently served notices on a company called SKM. Uh, they're recycling facilities in Coolaroo and Laverton. And this is because, you know, they had that big fire and um, the EPA is not convinced that the facilities are safe. So this is affecting Victoria on top of the fact that China's also not taking waste.
4: Yes, well I guess it's a bit of a flow on effect because a lot of the material that SKM was processing was heading off to China and so now obviously they can't sell it there. One of the problems is, well not really a problem, is in Victoria and Australia we are great at recycling. We put a lot of material into our curbside bins it gets collected and taken away. Where the problem really lies is that Australian businesses aren't buying the recycled material to use as their raw materials, they're they're preferring to buy uh, you know virgin new materials, and we've got to sort of close that loop uh, to make sure that recycling is uh, viable.
2: And so we're seeing um, again in in the wake of the, the bans imposed by the EPA that different levels of government are kind of blaming the other in terms of what should be done with recycling and and who holds ultimate responsibility for this. I mean, um, obviously the the uh, this hits local councils initially, but is it kind of their role to clean up this mess, or is it more or state or, or federal government?
4: Well, in, in, in the The main local government's responsible for collecting the the waste and recyclables from your household. Uh, State governments are responsible for legislation and and Commonwealth governments don't really actually have a lot to do with waste management. But this is a time where everybody's got to get together. We've got to have the state, federal, local. But we've also got to have other stakeholders such as business groups, uh, the waste and recycling companies. have all got to sit around the table and say, hey, how are we going to solve this problem? To date, that really hasn't happened.
0: And so there's a whole lot of ideas that I've read about anywhere, I've heard about over the years. One was the um, container deposit uh, legislation that already exists in some states. I wonder if that could work. I mean, other people are saying manufacturer responsibility. They shouldn't be making products that have a whole lot of packaging. I mean, are there solutions out there that might actually work?
4: Yeah, and, and this is the thing. When we look at some of the, uh, I guess, the uh, things that have been implemented overseas, there's a lot of solutions there that have been trialled. Some haven't worked, but many of them have. And so all we've got to do is uh, have have all the governments and the stakeholders sit there, do a bit of a Google search and find out what's happened, and then uh, look at uh, how they can implement it here in Australia. But again, it's about getting... Uh, uh, we've all got to take responsibility. It's about us not putting contaminants in the recycling bins. It's about businesses buying it. It's about a whole range of different things happening. It's about the government's putting in the uh, strategies to incentivize uh, businesses to, to use recycled materials. So it's not just a one-stop sort of issue or or solution it's a multiple thing and it's going to involve a whole lot of different people
2: and what sorts of measures could be taken i I guess by governments to encourage a recycling industry because i think it might have shocked a lot of people that we were kind of sending the bulk of it over to china are there measures that can be taken to kick-start that sort of process so we don't need to be shipping it all around the world
4: Absolutely. And I think you alluded to before, we've got to sort of look at um, avoidance. In waste management, avoidance is the preferred option. So things such as uh, the overpackaging of goods, all of those have got to be looked at and try and reduce the the actual amount that's being generated. But having said that, we will still generate materials. So we've got to say, okay, if a business buys, uh, uh, say, plastic uh, that's been recycled to use as their own material, is there a tax break or is there some sort of incentive or conversely, if it's available to them and they choose not to, is there some sort of levy that can be placed on them and then that's going to make their product more expensive and then the consumer is going to obviously choose the cheaper option if it's the same quality and that will put pressure on the, uh, the manufacturers to start using uh, recycled materials.
0: We're talking with our Trevor Thornton. He's from Deakin Uni and we're talking about the state of recycling in Victoria and also Australia. We're in a, a real crisis situation at the moment and uh, some of our recycling materials is actually heading to landfill instead of actually being recycled or reused into another product. And, I mean, what what are some of the reuse opportunities out there, Trevor? I mean, I've heard of things like, you know, grass being crushed into roads and that sort of thing. Is that Are they the kinds of projects that might be possible or are there other things that we could use recycled material for
4: there's many many i mean there's obviously the old traditional of uh you know making paper and cardboard out of uh, recycled paper and cardboard for uh, packaging or uh uh, photocopying paper and so forth but you're right there's uh processes now where uh, people are putting plastics into the road bases and the beauty of that is that uh when the road needs repair, they can uh, take it and just sort of, I guess, recycle it, put a bit more plastic in it and, and relay it. Um, there's plastic piping, garden furniture. Um, really, if you make an item, you could probably, uh, a large percentage of that could also be made out of recycled material. So if you have a look around, everything that you've got could possibly be made out of recycled material.
2: And you alluded to um, earlier, Trevor, the fact that Australians are broadly quite good at recycling. It's taken quite a while to get to that point and and change that behaviour so that people are inclined to put recyclable materials into yellow bins and that sort of thing. But I wonder when... People hear this this news of um, you know China imposing bans, the EPA preventing recycling plant, plants from from receiving materials. Whether that potentially might erode some of that learned behaviour, where people don't have faith that what they put in their yellow bins will actually be recycled.
4: Yeah, that's an extremely good point. And that's, that's probably one of the worries at the moment is that, uh, I mean, I've read some things in the, in the media or heard things of people saying, well, I'm not going to bother anymore. It's not going to go. You know, you talk to people, uh, you know, friends, et cetera, they say, oh, it's not worth it. We've got to continue to recycle. It may be going to landfill at the moment, which is not an ideal situation. But if, we, if people stop recycling, it's going to be really difficult to get them to start again. So, you know, my message would be to certainly keep recycling. Make sure you don't put contaminants in the recycling bin uh, and, and and continue as is. And, you know, I've got my fingers crossed, and a lot of people have, that the situation will be resolved in the future.
0: And, I mean, how far into the future, though, Trevor? I mean, we don't have the most, I don't know, functional levels of government at the moment. We've got two elections coming up in the next three months uh you know is it something that we're going to wait and see until the end of this year or do you think it might be something that gets convened a little earlier than that
4: Uh, I I think it's probably going to take a lot longer, and and you're right with the elections coming up. You know, we've got a thing called a national waste policy, which, uh, you know, the state and the federal governments are working on at the moment. Uh, It's been drafted. The trouble is, about 10 years ago, when Labor was coming into power, they had a national waste policy and not much happened. So it's the old, we'll get some promises and will it translate into actions uh, further on. Uh, this is where people have actually got to start doing things. But, yeah, I think it's probably going to take a lot longer than we uh, anticipate.
0: Yeah, and I suppose, you know, going... I mentioned earlier that a lot of people, certainly in Europe, uh, expect manufacturers to take responsibility for the packaging that they, you know, sell, basically, with their with their product. But also we've seen quite a good success recently with major supermarkets banning single-use plastic bags. So I wonder if there's opportunities there for for us to not end up with waste in the first place
4: yes exactly and uh you know again there's a lot of good stories overseas and this is what we've got to do we've got to publicize more so for example if a company is making their uh packaging out of recycled plastic we've got to hear about it so the consumers can make a choice but we've all got to take responsibility we can't turn around and say "Oh, it's just the manufacturers who have to change we as consumers have got to put sort of pressure on, and that happened with the plastic bags, uh, you know, the consumers put pressure on the supermarket say, we don't want these anymore, and uh, even though the government was going to, uh, or was introducing legislation for that, it happened a lot quicker. So, we need the consumers to say, hey, I don't want this item, or why aren't you making it out of recycled plastic or glass or, or metal or something like that? So. Manufacturers often say they listen to the consumer and they change the result. Well, this is where the consumer can uh, take the lead.
0: Uh Uh-oh, the finger's pointing at us. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Trevor. It's really good to pick your brain.
4: Great pleasure. Anytime. Cheers.
0: This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.